This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So no matter where you go in Mississippi, there's a friendly face close by that can point you to a local and welcoming fishing spot. As one of the many recreational outdoor activities Mississippi offers, fishing has rules and regulations that everyone must observe to stay safe and preserve nature's waterways. So today we're going to welcome Larry Pugh from the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks to talk about fishing spots around the state and also answer your questions about fishing regulations. And Dr. Major's here ready to take some pet questions. You can join the conversation with a phone call. Just give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or email the show send it to animals at mpbonline.org if you ever miss creature comforts on thursday we have a repeat broadcast every saturday morning at six so good morning hope everyone's doing well this morning good morning good morning kevin libby is uh, not made it in yet she told us she's a little bit stuck in traffic but hopefully she'll be here before the end of the show Uh, and uh, before we came on we were talking about uh, how wet it has been and, you know, last week we were talking about frogs and had some frog sounds. I actually was uh, taking my walk on Monday at the park. And hopefully this will work if I play this thing here. But I, I did my own frog calling or call, uh, recording. Let's see here. Southern chorus. Yep. That's my favorite frog. And I heard it and I, was, I just went crazy. I got my phone out. And unfortunately, the video, you can't see the frogs. But they were out in full force there. The first time around, uh, the, the, the trail... Right as I got my phone out, they stopped, and I thought, oh, they're playing with me now. Uh, but I got them the second time around, and uh, they were quite loud, actually, so there must have been a, a, a group of them, or, or there was a, a male uh, looking for his mate, that was for sure, but that was a lot of fun to do. And if you know, if you ever want to do that when you're out and about, we always like to hear your brushes with nature, and we look uh, for your, uh, your um, photographs if you're trying to help identify something. But if you hear something and can record it on your phone, you could email it to us, and we will play it on the air as well, so it would be a lot of fun there. <clears throat> Uh, as we wait for Libby to come, we do have a couple of um, pet emails that came in, uh, so let's deal with those. This first one a little bit long. Let me try to run through here. Uh, my grandson's poodle went missing in December. He's a stud dog who lives in the house. has not been neutered. We let him out to use the bathroom, and he took off after a female dog. Uh, Colin's wife saw him the next day running with a pack of dogs, but he wouldn't come to her. They live in a rural wooded area, so there are multiple places that he can roam. They've driven extensively in the surrounding area, have put out notices on Facebook, have even talked with neighbors all to no avail. One neighbor thought he might be sleeping in some old dog houses behind his house, so Colin put some of his clothes there to try to lure him. He's been spotted three times in various places by neighbors, but no one has been able to catch him. He's been gone so long at this point uh, and has seen so far from the house, I fear he's disoriented and can't find his way home. Do you have any suggestions as to what else can be done to help get him back home? Well... Well, let's see. First of all, uh, neuter dogs don't tend to roam as much as intact male dogs. Now, it sounds like it was a female in estrus or in heat. And unfortunately, a lot of times you will get a, <clears throat> a pack of dogs around that female. Uh, you get a lot, we see a lot of fights uh, where they uh, will be fighting uh, because of the attraction to that female. Uh, it sounds like this dog, I hate to use the word like, sounds like he's gone wild, gone feral, and he may be enjoying himself too much to come back. Most dogs can find their way back to home 
to home back home by circling. Um, they pick up their scent, and, uh, and it's amazing how they can find their way back. I really don't have it. They've done what they can. I really don't have any other advice as far as trying to uh, locate this dog. Uh, but it is a dangerous situation from the standpoint of being hurt uh, and a dog that's not used to being outside. But it sounds like he's learning pretty quick if they can't catch him. Yeah, that, that was an interesting email. So hope, hopefully all goes well there. And uh, if uh, the emailer, if you get an update and have found the dog or whatever, we would certainly like to know uh, how that uh, is resolved. <clears throat> Here's another one that says, I have a, rang- a rambunctious six-month-old kitten that likes to pounce on everything that moves. I also have a four-and-a-half-foot king snake that lives next to my house and patrols the yard. Twice I've grabbed the kitten before he pounced on the snake. How serious would it be if the snake were to bite him, and should I relocate the king snake? Good question. The king snake is there for mice, rats, frogs, other snakes, and is a very valuable snake to have around your house. Uh, certainly, uh, you have to think about this, is that kittens... Uh, and cats do much better as inside cats than outside cats. Uh, as far as if he is bitten by the snake, it not, should, not, should not hurt him. Uh, he might hurt the snake, though, if he has claws. <laughs> and, uh, but the snake is pretty good. I think he might scare that kitten at some point. All right. So, uh, in other I, words, I, you'd say the, the benefit of having the king snake in the yard outweighs whatever danger there might right. be between the kitten. And, right. Plus, I would think, too, uh, maybe just keep kind of keep a closer eye on the kitten uh, when he's out in the backyard and, yeah. and you know the snake is out there as well. So. I have to recommend keeping the cat inside. Uh, it's from based on just past experience. Inside cats do live a lot longer in most cases than old than outs than the outside cats. They get in less fights, uh, less trouble, and the old thing of curiosity kill the cat is very true outside. All right, uh, we've got a caller on the line, so why don't we invite uh, Dudley, our friend from Calhoun County, on the air. Good morning, Dudley. Go ahead. Good morning. I wanted to share quickly about an experience I had over the weekend. Sunday I was standing and uh, watching the four turkeys that play in my yard, and I was unaware of my friend who was hunting in the woods, and he came up real fast on his four-wheeler, the four turkeys flew over the house. Hmm. I was standing at the glass doors watching them. I was going over. That was the most beautiful sight I think I've ever experienced, and I wanted to share that hmm. with the, the public t- this morning. I'm sorry Miss Livy's late. <laughs> she just made it in. I just walked in in time to hear your story, Dudley, and I'm glad I heard it. They are beautiful birds, aren't they? You know, I remember when I came to the Department of Wildlife many years ago, and uh, I was uh, heard told that deer and turkey were considered large game. And that seemed strange to me about turkey for a while until once I saw them flying like that right over my head in the woods. And they're pretty big, aren't they? <laughs> you, I had never seen the belly of the turkeys <laughs> And that was what was the, the experience. And also seeing the experience of four big turkeys flying over. I mean, they just came over like 747. <laughs> and I, I just 
I have never had an experience like that. Thanks so much for letting me share that with you. All right. Dudley, have a great day. Thanks for your call. Always good to hear from you. Now, that reminds me in the park that I walk in, the, there are some geese there, and when a group of them take off, it's really a, an amazing sight. And I I was talking earlier before you came in, Libby, I recorded some frog sounds at the at the park, and the first time around, I missed them. And that's the same thing with those geese, because they start making this noise, and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going, you know. And I try to get my camera out to kind of get their flight path, uh, but so far I have missed it. But really, it is amazing because they start honking and making all this noise, and then you know, a group of them take off. It's it's quite a sight to see there. Like so. they're yeah, they're getting their instructions from the leader there. <laughs> yeah, everyone, gear up. We're about to go. Yeah, yeah. we're going this way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have any events to share? I do have events. Um, in fact, I guess first up uh, at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science here in Jackson tonight from 6 to 8 o'clock. That's, so this is Thursday, uh, Family Fun Science Night. And it's a great event every year. It's a chance for you as a family to learn some science, but do it in a very fun way. And uh, they, it's uh a, a little broader than we usually cover at the Natural Science Museum. So this is going to have tech, uh, technical stuff in engineering. So really physics, chemistry, live animals, all kinds of fun activities, some things that you can go home and do later with your kids. You'll learn that you can be able to repeat at home. And then some things are kind of too fantastic maybe to do at home, but they'll be fun to do at the museum, and the uh, Geologic uh, Alliance from Starkville is going to be there with the great big map of Mississippi, so be sure and wear socks and your shoes (laughs) if you go, because you'll take off your shoes and you get to walk around on the map and do different activities and games related all to uh, the geography of Mississippi. And then the other big deal there is the Robot Zoo exhibit will open Saturday, and uh, it's uh, basically using robots to show the fantastic ways that animal motion takes place in nature. So the robots will be partly they'll look like real animals, like there's a, a big, larger-than-life, very large platypus, duckbill platypus, and a house fly and a chameleon. And part of them, of course, will be covered with their skin, so they look like the real thing, like the dinosaurs did. But then part of their bodies will be exposed so you can see how all the electronics and the gears and the mechanisms work inside the animals. And then there'll be information there about how that relates to how the real muscles and bones work in in the animal. All right. So I've seen the exhibit before, and it's really a lot of fun. All right. Uh, let's uh, get one call in before our final or our first break of the hour. We'll talk with um, Ardell in Ridgeland. Thanks for calling. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Morning. Um, so I had a frog experience okay. that I've never had before. And um, I was at my place in South Mississippi about halfway between Loosedale and Pascagoula. And I was sitting outside and I have two dogs. And I heard the most odd sound, and it was loud. And I thought, wait a minute, is that a bird with a cold or what? And so um, I noticed my dogs followed the sound, and they both had their noses in the ground. So I immediately went over there, and there was a frog that looked to be about the size of a golf ball or maybe a little bigger, big old eyes, and its head was just out of the dirt. And it was screaming to the top of its lungs. 
And so I knew that my dog, one of them, would destroy the thing. So as it got out a little bit more, I just reached down with my fingers very gently and just tossed it into the brush. But I had never heard that sound before, and I had never witnessed a a frog coming out of the ground just like that in my presence. And I thought maybe y'all, when somebody might could tell me what kind of frog that was. Oh, gosh, I wish you did have a recording of the sound. But I tell you what, there are a couple of good websites that you can go on and listen to the frog sounds. Um, and uh, you can look up a list of Mississippi frogs online pretty easily, too. I'm sure Joe could give us some some better ideas as to what frogs. Um, it, now, did it look like a toad? Was it kind of... It sounded like to me when you when you related it to a ball, it made me think it was kind of round. Was it kind of squatty yeah. looking like a toad would be? Well, I, could, <laughs> I couldn't see the whole body because only the head and like the front legs had made its way out of the frog hole. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to maybe narrow it down for you when you look it up. But if you look up Mississippi frogs, that'll narrow it down. If you just look for frogs and toads, there are going to be lots and lots of them. You don't want to get into all the South American and that kind of thing. But So look for um, things that would be native to Mississippi. And while that sound, if you can still remember what it sounded like, you might be able to match it up online. All right, Ardell, thanks for your call. Let's uh, take our first break this hour. When we get back, we'll begin our discussion with Larry Pugh talking fishing today. He's the chief of fisheries for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Uh, you can join our conversation with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Dr. Major here, ready to take some pet questions as well. So stay tuned. Hey, this is Malcolm White with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Today we're talking fishing around the state with Larry Pugh, Chief of Fisheries for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. You can join our conversation with a phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, we got a couple of calls to get to, but we do want to bring Larry in on the conversation. So, Larry, we appreciate you coming back on the show with us. If you would, tell us a little about your background and some of the work that you do with the Wildlife Department. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Glad to be here. Um, always good to see you all here over at MPB. Um, I've been fortunate. I've been able to work with Wildlife and Fisheries and Parks for uh, 25 years now, uh, doing a variety of things. Obviously, I started in the field and spent a lot of time uh, working in various places all over the state working with freshwater fishing, primarily sport fishing. 
and uh, am now in more of an more of an administrative role, but have enjoyed that, and uh, uh, always look forward to talking fish, fishing, and fisheries. Uh, how often do you fish? That's a tough question. <laughs> I, I don't want to admit that on the air. Okay. Okay. Because I, you know, I fish year round. I fish during the winter, and uh, the, you know, so I, I might fish over fifty times a year, once right. a week. Nothing maybe. wrong with that. So, is it fish or go fishing, or does it matter? Is How it, often do you fish or go fishing? I mean, well, I fish a lot. I go fishing a lot. I may not catch every trip, uh, but I love taking taking other anglers with me, particularly um, uh, anglers that are just getting into fishing. I, mm-hmm. I love doing that, and um, you know, I can't guarantee the fish will bite, but we're going to have fun trying. And All right, I'm usually going to put in a good day doing it. Good long. I day. think that's half the battle. You know, whether, whether you get a fish eventually or not is, is is gravy, I would think. But it's the experience of going out there trying. Lo- love the experience. Love the experience. All right, we're going to be talking about some places to fish around the state, and also you have some updates on some of our state parks. Uh, but first, let's talk about some regulations. Um, how can people who go fishing make sure that they're legal when they're out fishing around the state? Well, we live in, in a world of such great technology now um, that it's so easy to find out, you know, if, if I'm going to a specific water body, what those regulations are in place. And um, obviously there's signs there. Uh, that at every water body, that if there's a regulation in place there. But I would encourage anglers um, to get on our website, and there are individual water bodies that have specific regs. And over the last 10 years, we've tried to simplify those regulations as much as possible. They're tailored to each water body according to each species. And there's a lot of effort that goes into setting those regulations. We probably do not have enough time to go into that. Uh, Libby's familiar with that process. So uh, there are things on our website, um, at signs. We have uh, QR codes that anglers can use their smartphones to scan and will take us take them to our regulations page. Probably the, 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 the question we get the most is um, if there's not a sign, if they do not see a water body, a lake, a river listed on the website, that means it's what we call state statewide regulations. There's not a specific regulation, and those have been in place for years. They've changed very little. Ten, you know, anglers are ten bass or ten bass uh, per person per day. Uh, brim, bluegill, red ear, the combination thereof are a hundred. Uh, so that's probably the question we get the most: is is if it's not a specific regulation, it's statewide. And I guess, as we mentioned at the top of the show, the regulations are put in both for safety of people who are out fishing, uh, but also to help uh, preserve nature, make sure that our natural resources are around for our generation and the next generation to enjoy, I guess. Sure, sure. You know, when we develop some criteria for putting a regulation in place, um, you know, does the population warrant it, the fish population, um, which means there's got to be enough fishing pressure, uh, if that makes sense. A lot of harvest. A good example would be Grenada Lake. There's a lot of fishing pressure on that crappie population. Number two, um, does the public support it? Is it easily understood? And then number three, how enforceable is that regulation? Um, do our conservation officers understand it? Are they going to be able to enforce that regulation? So a lot of goes into um, thought goes into before we just decide to make a, a, re- a management recommendation on a water body. All right. Uh, talk to us about fishing licenses. Who needs one? How do you get one? That kind of thing. 
anybody between the age of 16 and 65, 64 really, uh, is required to have a freshwater fishing license to fish in the public waters of the state of Mississippi. Um, uh, if you're 15 and under, you're what we call age exempt. And uh, we'd love to talk about this more in detail uh, a little later on if we've got time. But uh, anglers that are 65 and over are also exempt and not required to have a license. You're just simply required to have proof of age. Okay. It's a real cheap purchase, 10 bucks, and it's good for the year. So, and also, uh, if I remember correctly, when we talk about hunting and fishing licenses, the money that people pay gets plowed back into helping preserve the wildlife where they go out to hunt and fish. Is that correct? I have the opportunity to speak all over the state, and that's my message. Uh, the sale of hunting and fishing licenses are the lifeblood of our agency. Okay. Um, uh, without getting into a lot of detail about the general fund and taxes and all that, you know, we work for the anglers. We're under a really unique system. Uh, you know, Wallet Road, Dingle Johnson, Federal Acts, it's a, what we call a user pay, user benefit. Uh, those that buy a hunting and fishing license are ones that, that fund our agency, and, and those are the ones that benefit from the, the uh, things that we put in place to preserve and protect, protect the resources across the state. We're going to be talking to Larry throughout the hour. If you have a question or a comment, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. Send an email to uh, to animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, Jane's been holding on for us for a little bit of time. Jane, thanks for holding. You're on the air with us now, so go ahead. Well, thank you very much. I wanted to share an experience I had maybe a few years ago. I was I had broken my foot, and I was in a cast, and for entertainment, my husband used to drive me to some rural roads just for, uh, you know, like a Sunday drive. One day when we were on this road, we saw some little bitty puppies just scampering around. Um, and I stopped and looked over a hill, and there was the mama dog. She was on her last leg. She was just about to die. So immediately we went and got, I, I, didn't, I don't have a dog, so I don't know how to really treat dogs, but we bought some warm, we bought some milk and warmed it up, and we fed her. And as it turned out, we kept feeding her, going back to this area to feed her um, for several days. We fed her like three times a day. One day, uh, we went back, to, and we got the puppies, and we um, were able to give all the puppies away. And uh, one day when we went back, Mama Dog wasn't there anymore. Do you know that probably three or four months later, that dog showed up on my doorstep? <laughs> I couldn't, I just couldn't imagine it, but because I had broken my foot and it was in a cast, you know, it was an odor from that. Maybe, maybe it was a strong enough odor for her to find us. It was about three miles away from our house. Um, anyway, so she was there and she just said thank you and, and left. So I just wanted to share that. Is that possible for that dog to do that? Dr. Major? It's pretty amazing. I've heard some amazing stories, and that is one of them. Uh, yes, it is possible. She she may have been searching you for you for a good while, and then she, I guess, she, like you say, she said thank you and then left. She had other business. Maybe there were other people she had to see. I don't know. Uh, but that's a great story, and uh, I'm glad you were able to save the puppies and help her out. That's good. 
All right, uh, Jane, we appreciate that. And that's maybe a little encouragement to our first email we had where the dog has gone missing that, you know, they do have that, I guess, maybe an instinct where they, they might be able to find themselves uh, back at the home. Uh, maybe when he, you know, it, I, I liken that to maybe, you know, the midlife crisis. So the dog is out there sowing his oats, as it were, and when he's, when he's done, he'll come back home maybe. Right. Who knows? Who knows? Right, and that, that is a good possibility that at some point this dog may decide to come home. And uh, hopefully he will, and hopefully he'll be in good shape. We're visiting today with Larry Pugh, Chief of Fisheries for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, talking about fishing in Mississippi. If you have a question or a comment, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Before our next break, Larry, let's talk about some of the popular game fish in Mississippi. <coughs> And I always like this one, and I finally learned how to say it because I used to say it wrong. But talk first about – well, I hope I'm saying it right now that I said that. It's brim. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Correct. It's not bream. It's brim. Brim. Okay. Brim. <laughs> um, I would say, and, and Libby would probably, I hope, agree, that's the first fish that uh, most anglers caught as a kid. Hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I the first memory so. of, you know, my granddad taking me brim fishing – uh, it wasn't until, um, you know, my dad and I paid a lot of money for a college education to understand how many different species of brim uh, there are. But, uh, uh, you know, and the different names of brim, you've got bluegill, red ear, strawberry, chinkapin, long ear, you know, it, it could go on and on. But uh, we group those uh, panfish, a lot, uh, is another word a lot of folks up north that don't know what they're talking about call them, uh, um, is, is our term down here is brim. B R E A M, and so it's the first catch that most people get because there are so many of them. Um, yes, they're aggregate, aggregate spawners, uh, which is a fancy, you know, term for meaning uh, they they form brim beds. And so, starting usually in April, uh, May, June, they'll spawn multiple times throughout the year. Uh, they congregate and uh, will go through this process, and certainly makes them vulnerable to being caught. And uh, they're really aggressive, so uh, it's a good opportunity to t- introduce someone, a kid or even an adult that's never fished, because the action's usually pretty fast-paced. You know, I've always said they don't think before they bite. That's right. <laughs> Brim just bites. If yeah. you watch the fish in the aquarium at the museum when they get fed, a bass is very careful about it. It doesn't just run up there and grab. The brim just run up and grab all the little things you can feed them. And so I've always thought that's what's happening on that kid's hook too. You don't have to. You don't have to have the hook in the water very long, and a worm is fine with them. So. It's, it's a great fish for kids to catch. Right. And you can eat them. They're good to Oh, eat. sure. Wonderful to eat. All right. Let's take another break. Uh, when we get back, we'll continue our discussion. We're visiting today with Larry Pugh, who's Chief of Fisheries for the Mississippi <laughs> Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. And Dr. Major is here, ready to take some pet questions. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Got a couple of callers on the line, and also we'll get an update on some of the state parks, uh, state lakes, that is, uh, from our guest, Larry Pugh. Back with more after this, so stay tuned. 
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And our guest today is Larry Pugh, Chief of Fisheries for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. You can join the conversation with a phone call. The number is one mpb ring It's one 672 Or you can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Let's start out with some phone calls. Uh, Bobby's called in from Biloxi. Bobby, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Good morning, Yeah. Um, I was wondering why we don't get reminders from the state that our fishing license is about to expire, fishing and hunting. Uh, you know, Bobby, that's a good question, and and I'm honestly uh, I'm going to encourage you to call our officer, or, or if you'll leave your your number with the producer when I get back, I'll call you back. Um, normally, okay. the the renewals may be sent out by mail or email. Um, um, have you moved or, or you know, did you provide us with a valid email uh, or a correct email? Uh, that could be the case in some situations, um, but, uh, but I'll be glad to check when I get back to the office here in just a few minutes. All right, Bobby, what I'm going to do is put you on hold, and uh, you'll get uh, to talk to someone. If you would, uh, give him your phone number, and as Larry says, he'll follow up with you uh, after he gets off the air and heads back to, to the uh, wildlife de- uh, department. So thanks for your call. Uh, let's move on. Next, we've got uh, Brent in Natchez. Good morning, Brent. Go ahead. Hi, how are you? Good. What do you have for us? Um, I just recently on Saturday had to put down my Maltese um, for acute myeloid leukemia. And um, I'm trying to kind of make sense of this and the fact that the breed Maltese is the least likely to get cancer. He was 12 years old, which cancer declines after age 10. He got AML, which if you research, there's only about 53 case studies right now of dogs with AML. And I understand that benzene can be a contributing factor to gene mutation. Is there anything else I need to be considering as to, to why this may have happened? Good question. And I, <clears throat> there may be other other factors as well. Uh, in general, uh, most of our house dogs are not going to be exposed to a lot of toxins, but any more than we are, and certainly we are every day. Uh, there's been some discussion about the dog foods uh, possibly causing uh, cancer. So this is a rare case uh, in your your um, uh, experience, and I wish I could tell you more. Uh, sounds like you've done a fair amount of research, and uh, unless there were some mitigating circumstances where you could go back and actually check and be sure as far as exposure, it's going to be difficult to tell you. Uh, I'm sorry you had to put your, your dog down. And uh, it, it's really, it's one of those things that as a veterinarian, we deal with almost every day. And uh, it is unusual for a Maltese to have to be put down at that age. So, I, I appreciate it. I, you know, just trying to look beyond um, any toxic exposure. My right. thought would have been that if, if that occurred, he should have been vomiting and had acute symptoms, and, right. and he never did. He um, went down over a month period of time where he just finally stopped eating. So I'm assuming it probably wasn't an acute poison um, toxin reaction, but but I don't know. Right. Thank you, thank you for your call. 
and we're sorry you had to put uh, your little dog down. Thank you, Brett, for your call. Uh, before we go back to the phone lines, we do want to get an update uh, from Larry Pugh, our guest, who is Chief of Fisheries for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, about some of the state lakes. Uh, Larry, let's start with uh, Trace State Park. First of all, if you would remind us uh, where that is and give us the update. Well, I really just wanted to talk a little bit about the three lakes that we're getting the most questions on this time of the year. You know, we still have duck season. We still have deer season going on for a couple more weeks, and, and folks out there want to finish up strong with their hunting season. So uh, um, Tri-State Park, uh, we've been able to finally complete our repairs. Uh, uh, on the dam, and uh, we've done a lot of other things out there. The anglers are going to be pretty excited about. With all the rain we've had in January, the lake's filling back up, and um, we hope uh, that we're going to be able to reopen Trey State Park to fishing uh, sometime in 2020. Um, another lake that we've got um, closed right now is Lake Mary Crawford down in the south part of the state in Lawrence County. Um, uh, we've had to renovate it. We've stocked all our fish. We've stocked our, 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 all of our brim species. We stocked our largemouth bass. And um, once that population gets established, we're looking at reopening um, Lake Mary Crawford uh, May, June of 2021. So we're looking at about another year and a half for those fish to get established in Mary Crawford. And lastly, right down the road on Highway 49 near McGee is Simpson County Lake. Uh, we had a lot of good good bit on, the, uh, on social media about what was going on down there. Um, because of some issues with the dam, and, and dam issues have been uh, quite popular here in the last couple of weeks with all the rain we've got. Um, we've um, got to do some rehab uh, to the dam and actually to the emergency spillway, so that lake will be closing probably in the next week or two. We've allowed anglers in there uh, to get in there and try to catch the fish. We've actually moved a lot of the fish out of there to the, some of the other surrounding lakes, um, to uh, what I like to call do a fish rescue. So uh, Simpson County Lake will be closed, and the contractor's ready to go. Uh, as soon as it dries out, we'll get in there and start doing some dirt work at Simpson and uh, look forward to uh, reopening it in, in another two years or so. Okay. Uh, now, um, a couple of callers ago, we had that question about uh, renewal uh, notices for fishing licenses, and it appears that maybe there was some sort of snafu because – Normally, uh, reminders are sent out. Is that correct? Yes, I, I, I believe. I, I, you know, I'm going to have to check, okay. Kevin, um, um, and I'll, I'll be sure and check with our licensing department. Um, that's why I'm hesitant to, to give an exact answer. But I know in the past, if we had an incorrect address or an email, uh, uh, invalid email or incorrect email, the, the notice would have went out. But I'm going to double check for the caller okay. and uh, make sure we find out the correct information. All right. Uh, let's welcome Edgar from Jackson to the show this morning. Good, you're on the air with us, Edgar. Go ahead. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks morning. for taking my call. Sure. I just have a question about uh, licenses. Are visitors to the state required to have a temporary license to fish? Yes, um, Edgar, thank you for calling. We have a non-resident fishing license that's required if they're going to be fishing uh, the public waters of the state of Mississippi. And uh, you can um, get anything from what we call uh, a small trip license. So you can actually even buy a one-day freshwater fishing license uh, for your non-resident. That uh, it runs eight to ten bucks, counting all the agent fees. You can get a three-day freshwater fishing uh, license, or you can get uh, what we call a non-resident annual fishing license, depending on how long they're going to be here, how many days they're going to fish. 
Where do we get those? You can get those licenses any place that sells hunting and fishing license, uh, any of our vendors, or actually, you know, you can go online and get that license also uh, on our agency website at mdwfp.com. Pretty much any place that sells fishing equipment will sell the licenses to you. Correct, correct. Walmart, Academy, Dick's, so you can usually get a license there. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Edgar, thank you for your call. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Larry Pugh, who's Chief of Fisheries for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. So if you have a fishing-related question that Larry might could help you with, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. As usual, Dr. Major's here, ready for some pet questions. And I think that uh, Jacqueline in... Uh, can't read where that's from. Madison. Ma- Madison. Okay, that's what I thought. Of. All right, sorry. Boy, my eyes are going bad in old age. <laughs> Jacqueline, you're in Madison. Thanks for calling. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I'm here listening to you all this morning, and so forth. I'm getting so much information, but I do have a question. My husband and I own an Akita. He's three years old, and maybe a little before the holidays, we heard a real loud squeal, and we rushed to the back, and literally he had um, bit his tail completely off. And uh, had a long, beautiful, fluffy tail. We took him to the animal clinic. Of course, they immediately did surgery. And afterwards, we asked the doctor, could he tell us uh, why? And she said that they have seen it before, but they couldn't give us a definite. And I just wanted to see if someone would kind of answer that or know of anything would make the dog bite his tail. Right. Question I have for you. Where, how long was the tail left? In other words, did he bite it off completely? He bit it off to the point of maybe, um, um, yes. It was maybe like 10 inches long, 12 foot long, I would tell my husband. And he bit it all the way up to like a little nub. Okay, so he only has a nub left. Yes. Okay. Gosh, if he hadn't been biting on his tail or had not uh, suffered any type of injury, this sounds like an acute trauma to me. Uh, very rarely would a dog actually bite his tail off, and uh, usually there would be some indication that something was going on before this happened. The fact that he yelped, uh, I don't know if he could have hung it. His... Did you ever find part of the tail? Yes, we literally found the tail. Um, it was right next to him. You know, we okay. actually saw yeah. he, he wouldn't let us touch, and we had to put right. a muscle on him to get him to the hospital. Sure, sure. Well, it, that's, that is very acute, and I don't know what to tell you as to why he did. Uh, that is uh, highly unusual. As I said, usually if a dog's going to mutilate his tail or take part of it off, something has been going on for a while, but I think you would have known that. So uh, if you ever find out what caused this, give us a call back and let us know. I really don't know. I wish I could tell you. Uh, hope nothing like this ever happens again. All right, Jacqueline, thanks for the call. That That is uh, kind of a gruesome <clears throat> scene that could, you could imagine coming upon your dog after that had happened. So uh, good to see that uh, that they were able to get the dog uh, in and, and surgery and hopefully seems to be uh, doing, doing well. Yes, and that can be quite bloody. Uh, there's a lot of blood pressure. Uh, in that area because it serves up, you know, the dog's tail was probably 
uh, 20 inches long, give or take, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of blood supply. So I can see how that, and it's very painful as well. So, All right, time for one more break this hour. When we get back, we will continue visiting with our guest, Larry Pugh, who's Chief of Fisheries for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Hopefully, maybe we can get an update on the giant salvinia on the reservoir. Uh, you can still call in with a question or comment at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap up the show after this, so stay tuned. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with Larry Pugh, who is the chief of fisheries for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Got a call to get to in just a minute, but first, Larry, I mentioned before the break the giant salvinia that's uh, on the reservoir. Uh, and again, if you would remind, it's uh, vegetation, I guess. Is that right? And what, if you could make, remind us of what the problem is and an update on, on trying to, to solve that problem. Well, uh, your, uh, your folks that particularly live on the reservoir are intimately familiar with the problem that, that giant salvinia has been causing. Um, it's a floating fern that's uh, not native to uh, the United States that uh, once got established in Louisiana has quickly you know, started spreading and uh, can choke off entire water water ways and water bodies. And um, we've been aggressively treating giant salvinia. Uh, uh, we've formed a task force with some experts from the Corps, Mississippi State University, um, us and Pearl River Valley Water Supply District, the, the, the folks that take care of the reservoir. So our plans were this spring, uh, excuse me, this winter, um, to draw it down and and um, get into some areas that we found it this fall and really try to get in there and get rid of it. And, and obviously, I don't have a good update because we've got uh, flash flood conditions right now. Mm-hmm. So the drawdown that was proposed, you know, to 295 or that was um, uh, agreed to to 295 is is doesn't look real promising <laughs> with all the water uh, and the rain that we've gotten. So uh, if we get that opportunity, we'll certainly uh, hopefully um, get out there and take care of the problem. Um, our staff are out there every week monitoring, looking to see if we've had any expansions. We've had not. Everything that's inside or that, that is boomed off inside booms in Pelahatchie Bay uh, uh, has contained it. Now, how this high water affects it because it does float, uh, we hope we can keep it contained. Um, so uh, right now we're in the survey process. We'll start planning on uh, some additional eradication efforts coming up. All right. Well, that's good news. Hopefully, that as you say, at least for right now, it's contained. And, and as you say, with, with nature, that's about the best you can hope for. Uh, certainly here in central Mississippi, but I think all parts of Mississippi know how much rain uh, we've been having lately. And uh, it's affecting uh, levels of rivers and, and that sort of thing uh, everywhere. Um, so um, before we go to our next call, uh, earlier in the show, 
Uh, we had a lady called in a, a frog story, and uh, our friend uh, has uh, given you a, an answer. Uh, yeah, Joe, well, we've heard Joe from Joe. Joe just, just wrote me a little text and says he can't tell for sure just by what he's heard, but uh, the likely suspect is an eastern toad, an eastern spadefoot toad. So if our caller is still listening, if she'll look up that eastern spadefoot toad and listen to that song and look at that picture and see if that's not what she saw. All right, very good. He said particularly that's likely if there had been a large amount of rain at that time. Okay. It's been during these heavy rains. Back to the phone lines we go. Mark's called in from DeSoto County. Mark, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yes, sir. I was listening. I was uh, wondering um, what's the best time of year to start catfishing on the Mississippi River? Uh, Hey, Mark. uh, Thanks for calling in. Um, You know, we, and I grew up on the Mississippi River and, and have fished it and worked on it my entire life. And uh, if I had to pick my favorite time to be out there, it would probably be July through uh, October, um, depending on conditions. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, last July I wouldn't have been out there, the, you know, with the high water. Uh, but it is uh, under normal river stages when the river starts falling. Um, from July through October, uh, you can identify certain areas, the the ends of um, Benway uh, of dikes. Um, and that'll hold a lot of fish. We love to jug fish. You can catch them on rod and reels. Uh, a rod and reel, you can catch them on trot lines. So if I had to pick a time, it would be July through October. All right, sir. Well, thank you. All, All right. right. Thank Thanks you. for your call, Mark. Are there no uh, noodlers in the Mississippi River? Sure. Oh, Jugs. really? Okay. Are you All talking right. about, you talking hand, about hand grabbing? <laughs> you know, uh, that's a good question. I would say, you know, obviously we have a lot of hand grabbers on the oxbows off the river. I would think it would be difficult to uh, yeah, put a hand-grabbing box in the uh, channel of the Mississippi River. Has Paul ever seen anything? Do you say anything know, about hand-grabbers? I have never seen one in the Mississippi River, and yeah. I've never heard him talk about it. Yeah. But if somebody knows about it, they'll call us on that. All right, got another call here. It's uh, Eric from Liberty. Good morning, Eric. You're on the air with us. Good morning, sir. Uh, first of all, uh, I don't know this to be true, but I read that... Uh, Fish in a pond mate with the opposite sex, yet fish in the sea and the ocean, uh, because they might be on the sea, uh, they change their sex- sexual orientation to procreate. i like to know how is this. Now, my second question is, uh, I also saw, well, I also read this. It says animals such as zebras and some other species engage in homosexual activities now it, it, is this because they denied the right to breed that their testosterone might prevail uh i, I hang up and yeah. all right uh, eric thanks for the call okay what I, I i didn't quite understand what he was saying about the fish but it is true that there are i know maybe some freshwater but i know some saltwater species of fish can change their sex. Uh, clownfish, uh, a female clownfish is evidently kind of the head of the school, and if she dies, another large dominant male can turn into a female and then take the lead there. Moray eels, gobies, wrasses, those kinds of saltwater fish under certain conditions can change sex. Uh, I'm not familiar with any freshwater fish. Now, I've, I've seen <laughs> fish that had both... Um, eggs and 
or you know both gonads from both you know genders, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but not one that could start out male mm-hmm. and turn female in fresh in, in fresh water. Snails right. and slugs are known to be able to change. In fact, I, I can't remember what. There's some species that always start out as a male and then change into a female or vice versa. I can't remember how that works with slugs. But, you know, we, we've always joked about snails. It's so slow and hard for them to find a mate. They've got to have some new strategies, don't they? They've got to, that's a hard thing. Yeah, I've thought about it like that. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's not kind of like a bird that can go find a mate. But, so I, I have not studied any of that, Eric, but there's probably something online. Yeah. All right. Uh, Larry, got about uh, just a couple minutes left. If you would, uh, you know, uh, I think encouraging kids to enjoy fishing, it's something that they can do for their lifetime. So uh, if you maybe you are uh, have some kids that uh, are new to fishing or what are some tips and things to make fishing more enjoyable and to help uh, kids enjoy fishing? Well, the the first thing I would encourage them to do um, is, uh, you know, go with that parent, go with that grandparent, find a mentor uh, that's going to teach you how. Um, our department um, is is really focused on what we call, you know, hunter and angler recruitment, and that's you know the goal of introducing kids to hunting and fishing. Um, we've got programs out there um, on both hunting and fishing side. We do youth fishing events all over the state. We'll conduct over fifty youth fishing events. Uh, starting in March, where um, we try to increase the success of that kid catching a fish dramatically. And, um, you know, these are, are events where they can come and fish for several hours and catch catfish. And, and we, and we uh, in some events, we teach them how to cast, uh, rod and reel selection. You know, anything they want to know about fishing is, is what we try to introduce them to. But, uh, you know, we found that, um, you know, the, the most important thing is having that person there to take you. So... Uh, that parent, that grandparent, that mentor, that close friend, reach out to somebody you know that likes to do it and ask them if they'll take you. Yeah, I know that, uh, say, I mentioned a lot of times on the air that I walk in Bright Park in Pearl, and they have a a fishing rodeo every year, and it's always fun to see. I mean, people just flock there, and it's great to see kids and, as you say, parents, grandparents, that kind of thing. So Sure. All right, that's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced each week by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Larry Pugh, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next at 10, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. <laughs>